are in Ephesians chapter 6 still. Last week we talked about kids obeying their parents, honoring their father and their mother, and what God said would happen for them. We've been working through Ephesians 5 and 6, and Paul is giving us examples in this text of what being filled with the Spirit looks like. I don't want us to forget that. Okay, I want us to remember that this all is kind of hinging on that text from chapter 5. All of these things, what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? It looks like this. And so Paul breaks it down into the home with husbands and wives and kids and parents, and he brings it over into the workplace. He says, it looks like being filled with the Spirit looks like wives willingly submitting to their husbands as to the Lord. He says, husbands being filled with the Spirit, that looks like them loving their wives as Christ loves the church. For a kid, being filled with the Spirit looks like obeying their parents as they obey the Lord, trusting God's promises. And Paul also says that being filled with the Spirit looks like mutual goodwill between servants and masters as to the Lord. And so as we walk in wisdom and submit to one another, we're going to act in these ways. I don't know how you felt walking away from the the messages the last couple of weeks. I hope that you haven't been discouraged. I hope that you have been joyful in the fact that you're going to blow that. If that's what looking looking like what it means to walk in the Spirit, you're going to blow that sometimes. But God's grace is sufficient. His mercies are new every morning. But we as believers want to follow the Spirit more and more. And so we will look like this if we're being filled with the Spirit. Children are supposed to obey their parents because they want to please please Jesus, right? Kids, that's kind of the core of what we talked about last week. You obey mom and dad because eventually your obedience is going to transfer to someone else in your life. And moms and dads, we should want our kids to obey because that same thing is going to happen. Paul says today... Everybody is under someone else's authority. And so we have, to, we have to obey them for the same purpose, because we want to please Jesus. So let's get into the text. Let's read chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. I'll be reading from the ESV version today. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whoever, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there's no partiality with him. So before we really get to start applying this to our situations, and I've referenced this in my prayer and beforehand about how this goes with employees and employers and where you guys go to work, before we get to that application of it, I do want to just kind of maybe talk about the elephant in the room. And I don't know about your translation, but mine in the ESV talks about slaves obeying their masters. So I think it would be wise for us to deal with the historical context of what we're reading this morning. And understand that kind of elephant in the room before we move on. Because when we talk about husbands and wives, I think, we kind of, I think we get that for the most part. It's hard to do those things, but we understand what God is calling us to do as husbands and wives. We understand the dynamic of children obeying and honoring their parents. Those things haven't really changed in culture between us and Paul's day. 
Those things aren't identical by any means, but they're mostly the same. But when you read Paul's words here to slaves and masters, or some of your translations may say bond servants, masters, we don't have the, quite the same context that Paul did for those things. Okay, Paul uses the word for slave or bond servant. The word here in the Greek is doulos. I don't know if that means anything to you, but that's what is translated bond or bond servant or servant or slave. It literally means slave. It's the word that it refers to in the Greek. But when we hear that word, our mind immediately probably goes to something that Paul's didn't. And so I want to talk about the differences this morning because we'll apply these things to what we talked about in employment later on, but we need to recognize that it's not an exact comparison this morning. And so I want to talk about that. Paul's word of slave doesn't translate in our mind exactly to the word employee because no one, Brock, probably calls you Master Mitchell at work and you're probably very thankful for that. That would be awkward to be in at this point in our history. We don't call people master and certainly those who are employers do not call people under them. They're slaves or else they're not going to be employers for very long. That's not something that we do and we shouldn't do. But if Paul really didn't mean that a slave was an employee the way that we think about it, then why did he seem to be okay with it? Or at least he didn't condemn it like we think that he should. Every instance of slavery in our culture today, we want to rid ourselves of. We want to tear down, you know, the rebel flags and the statues and stuff to get that out of our history because that's something that's not comfortable for us. It's something that we identify was a problem. So why doesn't Paul go there? Why doesn't he tell Christians to go there? We've talked in the past, not maybe recently, but in the past we've talked about the horrors of human trafficking. Even in our own country, this happens. And how the church can have a hand in in helping and in getting involved. So why didn't Paul just tell slave owners to tell masters to just release their slaves? Why didn't he just say, masters, release your slaves? Well, When we talk about slavery in our context, we think of American slavery almost every time. And American slavery was racially based, and it was almost always lifelong. And there was very little you could do to change that. But in Paul's context, slavery wasn't really racial, and it usually wasn't even lifelong, believe it or not. Now, certainly we see examples in biblical history of slavery that looked like that. I just immediately think of the, the Israelites in Egypt. We're talking centuries of time, of generations that were in slavery, and that's maybe the closest depiction of what we have in our minds about slavery as well. Hard manual labor, day after day, very few, if any, rights, almost treated inhuman in that kind of a way. Paul's context was different for, for this. And there are some similarities, but there was differences too. And I was reading this week, and some historians estimate that in Ephesus alone, a third of all of the people that lived there were considered slaves. That's a, that's a big percentage of people. That's a third, that's 30% or more of the, the population were involved in slavery. This was an accepted part of economic life and culture in that time. One historian, biblical guy, even said, in the Greco-Roman world, slavery was so much a part of life that hardly anyone thought about whether it might be wrong. That's just how it was. It was a simple part of, of life. 
Some other differences. Slaves in, in Paul's day, they weren't just relegated to hard manual labor all the time. Now, there were some who were, but that wasn't the exclusivity of what their labor looked like. Many people who were considered slaves were put in positions of authority and leadership. They were, some of them were even educated by their masters. Some, we see this in history too, were allowed to save the wages that they made. They were paid and they could save their wages in order to buy their freedom one day. And then there's other parts. I think in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually says to, to slaves, if you, can, or if you can earn your freedom, do it. Slaves could buy land. They could own property. In fact, as, as ridiculous as it may seem, slaves could actually own other slaves. I don't know if you remember Joseph from the Old Testament, sold into slavery by his brothers. Who did he go work for? Potiphar. He was in Egypt. Where did he rise to? Second in command. A slave rose to second in command. There was some authority that went with that. So this kind of thing is not unheard of, but Joseph certainly had a different life as a slave than what we think of when we think about slavery in our American history and in our context. Roman authors in Paul's day actually wrote stories, and I read one of them this week. They wrote stories of how slaves would become so ingrained in the life of a family that they worked for that sometimes when they, their masters died, they would receive an equal inheritance with the children of the master. They'd become a part of the family. So maybe that wasn't especially common, but it wasn't outlandish to think. I don't know if you remember in, uh, in Paul's day, somebody, a guy named Felix threw Paul in prison. And it's believed that Felix actually was a slave that rose to power in that day and age. Power enough to put somebody else in prison, obviously. It's even recorded that ladies, that women, were able to advance beyond where they started as slaves, rising through the ranks, as, you, as it were, and able to also buy their own freedom. Now, some of that hinged on whether they were married or they have a husband, that sort of thing, but that was the case still, too. So how did somebody become a slave in that time? You know, were they always just born into it? Well, sometimes. Babies that were born to slaves sometimes became slaves themselves, but probably not for the reason that you might be thinking. So think about slavery in America. This was, a, really is a blight on our history. It's a dark spot on our history as a people, both as a country and, and honestly as a church in general. We didn't respond in that day and age as quickly as we should have. That kind of slavery was perpetuated by self-righteous and powerful people who exchanged integrity for wealth and influence and power. They were cruel and they were harsh and pretty much held the lives of those under them in their hands and they liked it that way. In the Roman Empire, though, slaves had limited rights and opportunities, but it wasn't like that. It wasn't like American slavery. So sometimes if a child was abandoned, he or she would become a slave. Um, I mentioned last week how Stephen had mentioned it in November, that in this, in this time, if, if you didn't want a baby or it had physical problems you didn't want to deal with, you'd just leave it. Somebody would get it. Hopefully it was a, a believer, and they would raise that, that child. But if not, those children were oftentimes subject to uh, prostitution, uh, being raised and then entering into the gladiator games. And there were some really hard endings, but going into slavery wasn't necessarily a terrible thing in that time. It offered them protection from some of those other worst things. 
It offered them a way to advance, opportunity, actually. Sometimes people became slaves if they were captured in war or maybe if they couldn't pay a debt. Some people even voluntarily became slaves in order to better their situation or to provide more opportunities for them and their family. We don't understand that. Because when we talk about slavery, why would anyone evo- anybody volunteer to enter into that kind of a thing? But that was not uncommon in Paul's time in Ephesus. Now, to be clear, I'm not trying to paint slavery as something glamorous. Okay, that's, that's not what I'm trying to do here. It's not really desire, highly desirable. But I, I do want us to understand how slavery in Paul's day differed from the slavery that jumps to our minds when we read a text like this. And I want, to, I want to be clear, too, on this. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the New Testament, does Paul or any other biblical author condone or endorse the abuse of power or mistreatment of people under their authority. If anything, I think these verses highlight quite the opposite. Paul is charging masters to treat those under their authority with a good will as to the Lord. This was a big deal. This was jarring and stark contrast to what people in Ephesus, certainly what we think in our minds, have about slavery, about masters and slaves. So Paul's goal in writing to the Ephesian church about this wasn't, I don't think, to spark some social revolution against slavery as they knew it. I think Paul was just instructing people on how to behave as followers of Christ no matter what situation they found themselves in. Whether you're a slave or whether you're a master, treat the other as unto the Lord. Kids, what do we learn? And you guys just reviewed it. What do we learn from Ephesians chapter 5? What's the little thing that Jason has led you guys to remember? Salvation equals imitation. That's right, right? Okay, good. Should have double-checked that beforehand. Yeah. (laughs) Salvation equals imitation imitation right that's who are we imitating well the very first verse of chapter 5 in ephesians says imitate god and we see who god is in the person of christ so who are we supposed to imitate him not not other not other masters who are cruel not other not other servants who are lazy we're supposed to imitate jesus christ What we know of God and how he deals with people should drive how we deal with people. Psalm 149, I'm sorry, 146 verse 9 says that God is a father to the fatherless and a champion of widows. That's how God cares for people. He's not oppressing people like that, the vulnerable. He's caring for them. James 127 says a similar thing. It says that he he cares for those who are marginalized and vulnerable And we're supposed to do the same thing. Real religion, James says, is that. Caring for widows and orphans. And remaining unstained from the world. I mean, Jesus himself stated his purpose in coming was because God had anointed me. This is him speaking. He says, God has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were, are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know what liberty is another word for? Freedom. I think that word probably stuck out to what Paul was talking about here. Again, the Bible does not endorse the mistreatment of anyone. It opposes it. It, 
teaches against it. But the underlying message that Paul is communicating to the believers in Ephesus, it wasn't necessarily that slavery was bad, but that they should, no matter what, they should be about the gospel. Christian theologian Klein Snodgrass, he says this, he says, the gospel immediately began, even in the first century, to undermine the institution of slavery. It lit a fuse which at last led to the explosion which destroyed it. The gospel is opposed to the kind of slavery that we think about. I want us to be sure that we're clear on that. In order to spread the gospel effectively, Paul instructs believing Christians, believing servants, to treat their masters how? As they would treat Jesus. And he instructs believing masters to treat their servants how? As they would treat Jesus. There's a common theme here, if you notice. So not only are they to treat one another as they would treat Christ himself, but Paul reminds them that they are both under someone else's authority. Whose? Their master. And at least in the ESV, master is capitalized because he's talking about God. Both servant and master here on earth are really under someone else's authority. God's authority. And in him is no partiality. Though slavery in the first century wasn't like the American slavery that we think of, this still would have been shocking to people. And it could have been life-altering. How many of you know the golden rule? The golden rule says that we should treat others as we would like to be treated. But Paul, I think, takes it even a step further here. He tells Christians to treat other people not as they want to be treated, but as they would treat the Lord. Ooh, that puts a little different note to that. Don't treat somebody how you want them to treat you. Treat them how you would treat the Lord, your master. So since servant and master are both living under the authority of one master, of God the Father, it should forever change how they relate to one another. Guys, this kind of thing would change everything. So if a third of all the people in Ephesus were potentially slaves or servants, don't you think that the church would have had this same dynamic in it? Don't you think that there were slaves and masters in the church in Ephesus? I think there were church members. One's a slave, one's a master, maybe of one another. I don't know. Notice some really important things in these six verses to servants and masters. Jesus is mentioned in every statement. The Lord is mentioned in every statement. Just look at this with me in verse 5. He's he's saying to servants, he's saying, Treat them as you would Christ. In verse 6, as bondservants of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord. Verse 8 and 9, do good and receive back from the Lord. Verse 9 also, he, the Lord, is your master. Look, Look at how a relationship with Christ is just interweaved everywhere in here. You can't get away from it. To Paul, it didn't seem to matter the exact specifics of the status of the people in the church he was writing to. Whether they were servant or master, they were supposed to treat the other as if they were Christ himself. Whether servant or master, treat the other as if they are Christ. Do your work as if you're doing it for Jesus. Lead those under you as if you will have to answer to a higher authority because you will. So for servant slaves, glorify God by obeying your earthly masters with fear and trembling. He says that in verse 5, the beginning of it. This phrase has the same intent as what Paul said back in chapter 5, verse 21. 
He talks about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here in verse 5, he says, with fear and trembling. It's the same kind of idea. Work respectfully and work hard because you really, who are you working for? Christ. But Paul also says to obey earthly masters in verse 5 and 6 with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. How many of you guys have ever worked at a job that you really didn't love your boss? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> you don't have to raise your hand. But how many of you guys have ever worked in a, in a, in a job like that? I, th- I think probably most of us have. And in that job, they asked you to do or told you to do something that you really didn't want to do. We've been there. So you're told to do this thing that you don't really want to do. And so you don't really give it your full attention. You don't really put your heart into it. We, we know what that looks like. Paul says that kind of work does not please God. He also says that working only while your master is watching is not doing God's will from the heart. He uses the, the term eye service. That's an interesting phrase. Do, you, do we understand that? You, you guys have probably worked with this kind of person. Hopefully you've not been this kind of person. The employee that only does what they're supposed to when the boss is walking by. You know what I'm talking about? We're not real fond of those people either, are we? Because as believers, we know that's not, that's not the kind of work that pleases God. Paul says this isn't what you do. He says obey with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Obey as you would they were Jesus not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. Hmm. Do we think that lazy effort pleases or glorifies God in the workplace? It really doesn't. For the Christian, that kind of behavior not only displeases God, but I would contend that it puts a bad taste in the mouths of your co-workers to Christianity. Because hopefully people around you that you work with know you're a Christian know you go to church, know you love the Lord, and then if they hear you saying these things and then they see you dodging work when the boss isn't watching, that's a separation that they're going to notice pretty quick. And it's going to put a bad taste in their mouth. As Christians, we believe that we're under the just and righteous, watchful eye of sovereign God who sees everything. So it doesn't matter if you're in the break room or hiding out in some other place. God sees what's going on. And let me just say this too. Believer, if you don't work hard, why would you expect your non-believing co-worker to work hard? We should be setting the pace in these things. But Paul goes even further in verse 7. He says that we're supposed to render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So servant slaves were told to obey and work with a good attitude. Why? Because they're working for the Lord, not for man. How could a person who's being told what to do all the time ever possibly have a good attitude? That may be a question that's in your mind right now. How, how could we as people who are being told what to do all the time ever do it with a good attitude? It's because we would realize that we're not doing it for that boss. We're doing it as unto the Lord. We're doing it for the Lord and not for man, verse 7 says. And I think this is where the power lies in all of this, right here. What is the focus of your work? What is the focus of why you go to your job Monday through Friday or whenever your job ends up being? Why do you do it? Is, is the focus the paycheck? 
at the end of the week? Is it the credit of doing a good job? Is it recognition from your employer? I hope not. Those things are going to be very temporary and unsatisfying in the end. Now, if you remember, this isn't in the notes, but if you remember, uh, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, God gave Adam work to do in the garden before sin ever entered the picture. Brothers and sisters, work is good. We should not work more at avoiding going to a job during the week than we actually do going to the job. You see what I'm saying? Because there are people that do that, and it's kind of ridiculous. Christians work with a good attitude because they know they're working for Christ. And Paul reminds both servants and masters in verse 8. He says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether servant or free. So in verse 9 tells masters to do the same thing. So we know that this is for them too. He says, do the same thing. Treat them the same way. If you weren't convinced of this before, I hope you will be today, that what you do in this life matters. What you do here matters. Verse 8 confirms this truth. God sees every deed, and God rewards good deeds. Now, this isn't karma. This is God's promises that go far beyond that sort of thing. Paul's already told his readers that good works matter. If you remember from chapter 2 of Ephesians, verses 8 and 9, lead into verse 10. Paul says, we are his workmanship, in verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And before that, he said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Brothers and sisters, it's Jesus' work that saves us, not ours. But if God has saved you, you've been saved to do good. To do good in this life. And if you're like most folks, you spend the majority of your week in a place surrounded by people where you could do an awful lot of good. Plenty of opportunities in the workplace to do good. So let's, let's transition over from masters and servants to bosses and employees. I think that this passage should absolutely change the way we work. We tend to put the focus on what kind of job we have. But I think Paul here in this text puts the focus on what kind of worker we are. And that's a big distinction. Unless your job is something that's in direct disobedience to Scripture, the kind of job you have is far less important than your faithfulness in that job. And side note, if your job is, someone is telling you in your job to directly disobey Scripture, you need to find a new job. Or stand up for the truth, or both. Because the truth is, you're always going to have someone in authority over you. Always going to have someone in authority over you. And unfortunately, there's a good chance it's going to be a person who you may not like. Maybe just a person that's not a fun person to be around, who's hard to get along with. I love the way one commentator uh, I read this, this week said it. He said that Paul was urging servants to transfer masters even if they couldn't transfer jobs. You see what he's saying? Transfer masters is looking at the boss in your physical job and saying, he's not my real master. God is. And you can transfer masters even when you can't transfer jobs. So the underlying issue here really isn't even the job that a person has. It's who their master is. That's really at its core. 
are you working for your earthly employer only, or are you doing your job as unto the Lord? Is it possible to work at a job you dislike because you're doing work for Jesus and not for your boss? Is that kind of perspective even possible to stay in a position you know, that you don't like a whole lot? I think it can be. The only way that it ever would be is if you start working for Christ regardless of who your boss is. We start viewing our boss as Jesus and not the one in authority over us on earth here. And again, Jesus is our example in all of this. As soon as he was able to, what do you think Jesus did? He picked up a tack hammer. Joseph was a carpenter, and so Jesus is in there, and he's working. The first 30 years of his life, we don't really have a whole lot of information, but do you think his parents just let him lay on the couch? I don't think so either. Jesus was working. Do you think that Jesus complained about the splinters from the wood that he worked with? I don't think so, even though he was going to have a lot bigger splinters in the end. Do you think that he would slack off when his dad wasn't watching? I don't think so. Do you think that someone had to threaten him to work hard at his job? No, I don't think so either. Brothers and sisters, the workplace is a unique and great place to live out the gospel, even when it's hard. And I would say, especially when it's hard. We remember that we don't live our lives. We don't love our spouses. We don't raise our kids. And we don't work at our jobs all alone. We don't do them in a vacuum. We do them with other people. Christ lives in us, and so we do our work unto Christ, and we do our work through Christ. You get that? We do our work for him and through him. It's only by the spirit within us that we could ever say, man, I don't like my boss, but I'm going to respect him and do what he says anyway because I'm working for Jesus, not him. The spirit has to be the one to do that. And if you have a position of authority in the workplace, you also need to heed Paul's words from our text, God's word from our text. Remember Jesus' leadership. How did he lead? He picked up a towel and he washed feet. He cared for the vulnerable. He didn't seek earthly praise. He came to serve. And there's a temptation here. Obviously, it's a temptation because Paul specifically points out in verse 9 to masters. He says, stop your threatening. Don't do that. How many of you have ever felt threatened with your job? You don't have to raise your hand for that one either. But you thought, man, if I don't do this, I could lose my job. Or maybe even worse, maybe your boss is yelling at you in the workplace. Some of us have endured that even. That's no fun. And so Paul says to masters, no, don't behave that way. Stop your threatening. When you're responsible for what other people do, it can be tempting to micromanage or to look over their shoulder or breathe down their necks and get angry or generally just make life miserable for your employees. It can be tempting for those in authority to abuse that authority, being harsh and uncaring with others because of this weird sense of entitlement that they have. But Jesus didn't come like that. He came as a servant, not as a dictator. And that's how we should model that in the workplace. Paul does away with this very thing at the end of verse 9. He says, don't threaten because there's no partiality with God who is your real master. But I hope that I'm not the first person to tell you guys this. But I want you to hear something this morning. You are not defined by your job. Isn't that what the, the lady on the video this morning said? As a, she was a weather lady. And she said she was defined by her job. 
And it wasn't until God helped her understand that she, at her core, was a, a child of God, things didn't change. Brothers and sisters, you are not defined by your job. Your worth is not connected to the position that you have at work. Whether you're the highest paid or the lowest, it doesn't determine your worth here. But the system of the world doesn't really work that way, does it? Think about this. When you meet somebody for the first time, one of the first three questions that usually comes up is, what do you do for a living, right? So it's name, where you live, what do you do for a living? Because we're so defined by what our jobs are at work. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't take pride in what you do. The exact opposite. But what I am saying is you're not defined by what you do. Instead of asking, what do you do for a living? Maybe we should be asking, who are you deep down? What do you enjoy doing? Who are you really outside of where you spend 40 hours a week or more? Christians should relate to people differently in the workplace because our jobs don't determine our value. Christ does. He does. When you walk out of these doors, you don't leave your Christianity behind. You're a follower of Christ in the church, in your home, at the store, at your kids' basketball games, and very definitely, you're still a Christian in your workplace. The Lordship of Jesus doesn't only affect the spiritual aspect of our lives, you guys. The Lordship of Jesus affects us in our workplace, too. So there's really hardly a difference between the spiritual and the secular work because all work is supposed to be done for Christ, to Him, and through Christ, through the Spirit. I hesitate to even ask this question, but what's think about the worst job you've ever had. We've actually mentioned it this morning with the, the grocery store and the Little Bitty Song or whatever it's called. That was one of my worst jobs. And I, I worked before that, I worked in a recycling bin trailer. And they, those aren't really a thing hardly anymore. But that many years ago, so I was the guy, when you'd take your, you know, your 30-gallon trash bags full of stomped up cans, aluminum cans, you'd take them to the big recycling trailer at the back of the Schnooks parking lot or whatever, and you'd, they'd weigh them. And then some person would take them to the back and rip open the bags and throw them in the back. I was that guy. And I like that job better than the grocery store listening to country music all day. But I would take these bags of aluminum cans and, you know, I couldn't be picky about where those cans came from. So by the end of the day, guess what I smelled like? I mean, it was 120 degrees in the trailer anyway, so I smelled like B.O., but I also smelled like stinky beer and sticky soda and everything else that comes in an aluminum can that you can recycle. And I was just covered in that stuff. And I still like that job better than the, the country music. <laughs> but that, that, there's, and you guys could trump that with some jobs that you've done. This kind of led me to the question that I want us to think about. What motivates you to get up and go to work? Is it the paycheck? Is it just to feel needed? Is it to hear the latest gossip at, around the water cooler? To feel a sense of purpose in your life? What really matters from what we looked at today in this text? It's not whether you work at a hospital or whether you work at a school or whether you work as a trash collector or whether you work as a farmer or whether you pump septic systems or whatever job you have. That's not really what matters. What matters is how you respond to Jesus in that job. What matters is how you respond to Jesus right now. What matters is who your real master is. John Stott says it this way. It's possible for the housewife to cook a meal 
as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it. Or to spring clean the house as if Jesus were the honored guest. It's possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients, and nurses to care for them, for shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. Is that the motivation for why you get up tomorrow morning? I hope that as you do, your motivation may be that. Maybe it wasn't yesterday or Friday or this week. But let it be that as you wake up tomorrow. Your motivation is not just to clock in and clock out and earn your paycheck. Because if that's all that it is, man, you're going to feel like you are wasting your life real quick. But if you go into your job, whatever it is, thinking, man, I'm going to honor God by how well I work today. I hope and I think that that will change the way that we view our job. Because in reality, you guys know this, jobs come and go. Job, there's a good chance, unless you're already retired or a couple of years from it, that the job you have now will not be the last job you ever have. Jobs come and go. Careers get cut short by loss or sickness or family crisis. So many things Outside of our control can change this sort of thing. But there are some things that you can control. And as we close, I want us to think about these things together. You can't control all those other things, but you can control how you understand your worth. You can control who you work for. Talking about transferring masters, working for Christ. And you can control what kind of job you do in your workplace. You can control those things. By the grace of God, Jesus came to do for us what we could not ever do for ourselves, to free us from slavery to sin and to bring us into a loving relationship with God the Father. Jesus has come to do that. Is he your master? Is he the one who you work for? Because of him, we are no longer slaves. We are sons and daughters of God. As we wake up tomorrow morning, many of you, and you put on your shoes and you put on your coat to walk out the door and you take a deep breath because that's not the place that you would really like to be going, I hope that we will remember this. May everything we do in our place of work flow from a heart of thankfulness and faithfulness to God and from a life lived boldly for his glory because how we work glorifies God. Who we view our real master is and how we work for him glorifies God. Let us have that attitude as we go. Let's pray together. Lord, work is not a bad thing. And uh, I, I, pray, I pray, God, that we would have jobs that we enjoy. Many of us, I think, do. And Lord, what a blessing. May we see that as a blessing as we get up and go to them this week. If we, if we like, like our job even a little bit, let us be joyful in that. But Lord, if we don't, if we don't want to get up and go to work tomorrow, Lord, help us, remind us of these things, that we are not working for a paycheck or for our earthly boss. We are working to please and honor Jesus Christ. And as we go and we interact with our bosses, maybe some that we don't care for a whole lot, Lord, may we view them as Christ. And may we honor them and respect them and their place of authority in our lives as we would Jesus. And may we work hard not being lazy, Lord, but that we would give everything we have because we're giving it for Jesus Christ in our workplace. And Lord, for the young people here who maybe don't have full-time jobs yet, God, I pray that they would work in the jobs that they're given in their home, 
and around the house, Lord, I pray that they would be working hard at those things to honor those in authority over them. Lord, because when we do that, we know that we are honoring and have a reverence for Christ. And so it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.